0: Well, that was only part one. It's a cliffhanger. Now I'm going to go hunt down that shark, or whatever it is, and hopefully kill it. I don't know how yet. Maybe dynamite.
1: You don't know what it is?
0: No, I've never seen anything like it before in my life.
1: You say it is a jaguar shark. That's the title of your film.
0: It was coming right at us. I just said the first
1: two words that came into my head. That's an endangered species at most. What would be the scientific purpose of killing it? Revenge.
0: Welcome to part 1 of our deep dive into all things seafood. I researched this topic for a long time, too long of a time, and I found myself meandering on a journey of information overload. Weeks of work went into this. It is over 3 times as long as my other episodes and took a lot of rewriting and rethinking. You see, I was left confused. I started to explore seafood and fishing from many angles, and I wanted to explore what most people find A boring topic and expose it as truly fascinating and consequential don't worry it most certainly is but I didn't know how to present this information in an impactful way I just kept finding new information I thought important and worthy of including in the end I found this exploration if to be impactful useful and informative had to be one in which others could perceive it holistically just like I ended up doing during my research. That's why it's jam-packed. I wanted to let you know that. I also wanted to let you know that I ended up using a lot of sentences that start with I, and I often address the listener directly. Instead of presenting, revealing information, and leaving you to come to conclusions, if you come to any at all, I am more forward in my thoughts on this matter. That wasn't the initial idea. That's not what I've aimed for so far in the show, but that's the way it turned out for these episodes. That's the way it needs to be. I didn't make that decision lightly. I hope you'll soon agree. If you're wondering about the intro, that's Bill Murray from the ridiculously fantastic movie, The Life Aquatic. If you haven't seen it, rectify that. If his reasoning behind wanting to kill an endangered marine species being revenge seems frivolous. Keep that in mind when we explore the reasons we do our fishing. The pointlessness of his response is the point behind using it. As stated, this is part one of the episode. In this episode, we're going to take a look at why this topic is so surprisingly important no matter what you eat or where you live. We're going to look at the history of fishing and consuming seafood, in which you'll see how quickly we've upended things. We'll look at what we're doing to the oceans and the implications of that. We'll touch upon what can be done, what should be done, and why. In the next episode, we'll jump into the health of different types of seafood for humans, which is again surprising, and not in the way you may expect. We'll evaluate the situation as concerns many of the types of seafood you probably enjoy in terms of health, sustainability, ways to get yourself the best kinds, etc., And we'll talk about the effects of oceanic pollution and what to do about it, among other topics. It will have more actionable information for seafood lovers. Just know that there will be a lot more coming at you in part two. It also might help to explain that this will not be your average story about seafood, where i load you up on sadness about the loss of the living creatures of the ocean, all driven by human greed. Sure, there is plenty of that sprinkled in, but that was not my takeaway after looking into all of this. I ended up seeing things differently, and I try hard to explain what I see as the philosophic underpinnings behind the wildness that is humans fishing on planet Earth. I grew up near Lake Michigan. I live inland now. I prefer salt-free water. I don't eat fish nor do I have any real connection to the creatures of the ocean. Yet, I saw how these issues affect everyone, so if you're like me, this episode applies, and it will not be what you think it is. You do not have to be a seafood-loving, oceanside person for this to be relevant to you, and that's kind of why I made it. This topic needs to be understood from as many angles as possible and by as many people as possible. Governments, the UN, and even environmental groups are essentially either ignoring what is genuinely happening or doing a crap job of addressing it. Plus, their help can only go so far. This is an issue that can be better fixed by consumers than by leaders. And, importantly. There are ways out of this. We can start addressing these issues tomorrow, and we can probably fix them with a bit of time. We just need the motivation to do so. But motivation without information is a big ask. And don't worry, the advice will not be to just stop eating fish, although a version of that tactic needs to be discussed for important reasons. One must stay realistic, though, suggesting the extreme often leads to complete inaction. Once we go through this journey, you'll see there is a way to have your fish and eat it too, but more on that later. There is an appalling, slow, global suicide of sorts occurring right now in the waters all around us. I might use a synonym for suicide if one existed to be less dramatic and not turn you off from hearing more. But there aren't any. Plus it fits, because we are harming our chances for future life through killing off the ocean's inhabitants. This is true regardless of where you live or what you eat. It was hard not to think that what I learned while looking into fishing is the most significant story concerning our world's health that, compared to other environmental issues, no one is really talking about share this episode with others. Take a further look into it. People need to know about what they're supporting with their innocent ignorance, dollars, and dinner choices. As always, these episodes do always start out as a written essay of sorts. If you'd like to read it, just head over to remedialpolymath.com and you can see all the references I use, should you like. I also have to humbly ask for you to like, comment, and share this episode on whatever podcast app you use and your social media. Please take the four seconds to do so. It would really help. Also, I just started a Patreon for the show at patreon.com slash remedial polymath. Please do check it out and help me make this my day job. Uh, As this is just starting, any patrons can also help me shape the show uh, and the Patreon page as well. Okay, now that the public service announcement is out of the way, let's take a deep dive into all things seafood. Let me tell you a story, a true story. In the 20th century, the waters off the coast of Somalia were teeming with marine life providing vital sustenance and income for the coastal communities. Fishing was a way of life for many, and the sea's bounty supported families and local economies and was an underpinning of their culture. However, they soon found many unwanted foreign visitors armed with modern equipment. These foreign vessels, driven by the demand for seafood in global markets, began exploiting Somalia's waters with little regard for conservation or local livelihoods. Industrial-scale trawlers and illegal fishing operations plundered their seas, quickly depleting fish populations and leaving local fishermen struggling to catch enough to support their families, calorically or monetarily. As, As fish stocks disappeared, jobs and food disappeared, desperation grew, and the people couldn't reliably keep their children's stomachs full. Many then turned to what they saw as their only last resort, piracy. The economic desperation fueled by the collapse of the fishing industry had far-reaching implications. With traditional livelihoods eroding, coastal communities faced hunger and poverty. The lack of alternative economic opportunities led many to try to extract wealth from the fancy vessels they saw sailing past their shores. Pirates, once fishermen themselves, began hijacking the very commercial vessels that they saw as the initial cause of their despair. As these ships would pass through their region, they would storm the boats and then hold crew members for ransom, and hold the boat ransom, demanding payment for their release. The piracy crisis profoundly impacted the region's stability, affecting much more than coastal fishing communities. Somalia's central government was weak and struggling to maintain control, and the piracy problem further eroded its authority. Foreign naval naval forces intervened to curb piracy activities and protect international shipping routes. While aimed at strengthening security, these interventions also led to clashes and confrontations with local communities, exacerbating existing tensions and giving more power to questionable figures. We know how things ended, as Somalia is now considered a failed state. The story of Somalia's fishing industry collapse is a stark reminder of the interconnectedness of environmental, economic, and political factors. Unsustainable fishing practices, driven by profit and disregard for local needs, devastated marine ecosystems and contributed to poverty, piracy, and political instability. The situation underscored the importance of responsible and sustainable management of marine resources and the need for international cooperation to address global challenges. The story of Somalia serves as a cautionary tale about the consequences of ignoring the delicate balance between the human needs and the health of our oceans. It highlights the urgent need for sustainable fishing practices and the recognition that the choices we make in managing our marine resources have far-reaching impacts that extend beyond the boundaries of the sea. The introduction of modern fishing vessels and their modern tactics carry not how or what they took helped push Somalia as a whole into collapse. Let me tell you another story, also true. In the 19th century, the the town of New Bedford in New England experienced a period of unparalleled prosperity driven by the whaling industry. The town's economy boomed as its whaling fleet dominated the seas. The streets were lined with opulent mansions and bustling businesses. This place was straight-up rich. It was the Silicon Valley of its time, with VC-like investors backing more and more whaling ships. The promise of immense wealth drew many. Even simple deckhands on these ships made substantial wages when a successful hunt was achieved, coming home with loads of cash, which they then injected into their community. Whales were prized for their blubber, as it is rich in oil that could be rendered into products like lamp oil, cosmetics, and soap. This oil was a vital resource in an era before electricity, and it fueled the lamps that illuminated homes and streets. Seems pretty odd today, imagining people looking to ocean animals as an energy source for street lamps. It illustrates a possible future in which our current practices could be remembered as self-destructed and foolish in kind of a similar way. Uh, Either way whales were hunted ruthlessly with little regard for the long-term consequences of depleting their populations. While New Bedford flourished, whales became the target of relentless exploitation. You can predict what happened. The pursuit of profit led to overfishing on a massive scale. Whaling ships crisscrossed the entire world, often spending years at sea, searching for profits concealed within the bodies of our ocean's most enormous creatures. This intense hunting pressure decimated whale populations, bringing several species to the brink of extinction. Sadly, it drove a few species to a complete end. The Atlantic Grey Whale, the Pacific Grey Whale, the North Atlantic Right Whale, and the Caribbean Monk Seal were all extinguished for their fat. Due to our desire for their blubber, these animals will never be seen again. While we can't know for sure, it is estimated that many whales worldwide were hunted down to just a few percentage points of their former populations. By the late 1800s, the once abundant whales were becoming scarce. The industry that had brought prosperity to New Bedford was collapsing, and the whole region's economy declined. The decline of the whaling industry had far-reaching economic and cultural consequences for New Bedford. Like I said, the entire region of New England, the entire economy, suffered a severe blow as the supply of whales dwindled. Ships returned with smaller and smaller hulls, and the once-high wages for the sailors began to dwindle. The grand mansions that had symbolized the town's wealth fell into disrepair, and the bustling streets grew quieter. Faced with the reality of an industry in decline, the residents of New Bedford turned to a new and more sustainable seafood source, oysters. The town's natural harbor provided an ideal environment for oyster farming. Oysters were abundant and relatively easy to cultivate. They embraced this new path and decided to alter how they viewed the ocean regarding food and money. It offered a steady income source um, for those who shifted their focus from whaling to oyster farming. Maybe overnight fortunes weren't made, but a healthy and long-lasting economy emerged. The story of New Bedford serves as a stark warning about the consequences of unchecked overfishing or overwhaling and the importance of sustainable resource management. Humans threatened the entire population of cetaceans, all types of whales, everywhere in the world, with the technology of the 18th and 19th centuries. Imagine what we are capable of today. However, this story also underscores the potential resilience of communities in the face of changing circumstances and the potential we have to change our ways for the better. The shift from whaling to oysters farming revitalized the town's economy. It contributed to the conservation of all marine resources in the region. The entire ecosystem was made healthier. Today, As we face similar challenges with the exploitation of seafood resources, the story in New Bedford serves as a reminder that principles of sustainability and responsible stewardship of our oceans must guide our approach to catching and consuming fish. We must have sound first principles how we approach the seafood industry. Even if one is driven by greed, this still applies. Now let's take a quick look at what's going on in our water. I told those two stories to exhibit two different reactions humans have had to errors made in our relationship with seafood. Regional collapse and the re-emergence of piracy due to due to these errors sure is scary. So is almost eliminating the world's largest marine animals from the planet. We're not here to discuss pirates and whales but their stories illuminate the weighty unintended consequences of mistreating our oceanic ecosystem, because these examples are nothing compared to the potential results we are at risk of creating today. The threat is not regional, it's global. It threatens a lot more than just the prevalence of a food source. Let's examine some rapid-fire information about what's happening in our waters. Diving too deeply here and getting lost is easily possible, so we'll try to keep it succinct while covering much ground. You'll just need to hear this near the beginning of this, these couple episodes to better comprehend the scope of the big picture situation we find ourselves in. Here's some data that'll make you double take. Recent studies project that wild-caught seafood may disappear by the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, literally disappear. It will not be available in your grocery store if we keep up with current practices. About one-third of the seafood, seafood species humans hunt and consume have crashed. Those species risk becoming severely depleted or even extinct from a specific region or entire ecosystems. Here is another wild projection. If we don't change our ways in 30 years, plastic in the ocean will outweigh all marine life. That's just plastic waste. This isn't a tree-hugging, politically-motivated hypothetical. It's pretty clear to see. Oh, and fish appear to like eating this junk or simply can't avoid it you know, getting into their system for numerous reasons. When consumed, this waste does not merely move through the digestive systems of our seafood. It gets absorbed into the edible tissues. And unlike the land animals we consume... There is no way fish can avoid exposure. These waste products are within the medium of their existence. They're literally swimming in it. Estimates of how much seafood the average human consumes yearly are just over 45 pounds or slightly above 19 kilograms for our international friends. Another related and consequential data point is that we eat twice as much seafood as we did 50 years ago we're doing twice as much fishing as we did recently as the early 1970s. Uh, Isn't that unexpected and intriguing? Remember that statistic. It uh, it really surprised me. I I, I didn't think that uh, within my father's lifetime that we would have doubled the amount of seafood we consume per person. We pull from our oceans, lakes, and rivers about 93 million tons of wild-caught fish every year. Not surprisingly, it is mainly from our interconnected oceans. Here's the horrible reality of our fishing efforts. It is calculated that an astonishing 38.5 million tons, or 41%, of what we pull from the water is known as bycatch. It is marine life we catch but did not intend to. Bycatch usually gets thrown back. And the fish are either dead when that happens, or they're so affected by being caught via industrial-level trawling that they soon die afterwards. It is vital to note that these numbers reflect what we know of within the legal side of fishing. Even then, it often comes from self-reporting, and one has to doubt that they don't fudge the numbers in their favor a little bit. Illegal fishing is, by its nature, pretty tough to quantify. Still, reasonable estimates predict it between 11 and 26 million tons annually. I'll go out on a limb and guess that the more significant number is safe to work off of here. Therefore, simple math tells us that illegal fishing, not including the bycatch, is about one-third of all worldwide fishing. So one-third of the fish you eat, even in America or Europe, or maybe especially in Europe, it's illegally caught. On average, one-third, it doesn't have to go to some sketchy market for this food. You don't have to go to a sketchy market for the food either. It uh, often appears just like any other product in the store or a restaurant. What else often gets caught in those massive nets as bycatch, do you wonder? Oh gosh, let's see, dolphins, sharks, turtles, birds, octopi, coral, the list goes on. But uh, let's examine the dolphins and sharks. These larger predators are paramount to the health of the entire food chain of the oceans, from microscopic organisms all the way on up. Removing them will result in many predictable adverse outcomes, and maybe more importantly, numerous non-obvious and unknowable consequences. These are ancient creatures. These are intelligent creatures, especially for the dolphins. They are the ocean's cleanup crew. Just think, there were sharks in the oceans before there were trees on the land. Yep, true story. The oceanic ecosystems flat out do not remember operating without them. It is estimated that up to 100,000 dolphins are caught in nets intended simply for tuna each year, along with an unknown amount of smaller, unintended creatures, In the Indian Ocean alone, it is estimated that only 13% of the dolphin population that existed in 1980 is around today. It is not uncommon for commercial fishing boats to kill more dolphins or sharks than tuna fish when they do a haul. So imagine if you went to go deer hunting, and by pulling the trigger, you also ended up, you know, killing a bear, a wolf, some squirrels. Would you still hunt in that manner? Here's the thing, it doesn't matter what company you buy from or what seal of approval it has, companies currently have no will to commercially fish for just one species in a perfectly effective way. They probably wouldn't catch enough to be commercially viable with today's fishing tech and methods. One can understand that concern. However, looking into new tech and methods is something any industry should continuously be doing. The large companies with modern gear and fancy boats hailing from Western countries are also involved in this horrible bycatch reality. It is often unknowingly, but sadly knowingly, done as well. Another thing to consider regarding illegal fishing is where it occurs. It may not surprise you that it is usually not off the coast of wealthy countries where navies and coast guards roam, although that does still happen it is off the shores of poorer countries and regions where illegal fishing is rampant. But just like in Somalia, this does not mean those impoverished regions are at fault. Fishing is often done by companies from wealthier countries, from wealthier countries subsidized by their, their governments. These companies, the fishing companies that you may know, uh, they're subsidized by the government in the process They shoulder out local fishermen who can't compete with the big boys. Sound familiar? It destroys their economies and takes food, often calories necessary for their health and survival, out of their mouths. And we're talking about out of the mouths of people in these poorer countries and regions. This part is incredibly upsetting. All of us in the civilized world, through our taxes, are subsidizing the fishing industry to the tune about $35 billion a year. Without that financial lifeline, the industry wouldn't be profitable or be able to do the harm that it does. And Why are these governments doing this? For quote-unquote food security. That's right. I uh, hope I don't have to give you any fancy statistics to convince you how laughable this is. How is it that countries many of which are concerned about obesity within their populations, concerned about consuming too many calories, able to justify these harmful subsidies. Year after year, we are gambling with our treatment of the oceans, and every year, the game inches towards a loss for both the oceans and us humans. I can now sense an understandable response that sounds something like, okay, okay, so we really need to improve commercial fishing. We need to rethink how we support and regulate this industry. We pollute too much. I get it. We all get it. But why freak out? We don't live in the ocean. We don't have to eat marine animals to survive. This response doesn't seem balanced. What's the point of this fr- frantic grandstanding? Hmm. A coherent response, maybe. But only if you don't know the bigger picture. So let's zoom out consider the following two sentences. The oceans, through the living creatures and plants within them, store 93% of all the carbon on earth. The oceans, through the same creatures and plants, give us over half of the oxygen we breathe. It is estimated that phytoplankton, kelp, and algal plankton Give us between 50 and 85% of the oxygen we breathe. One type of phytoplankton, Prochlorococcus, releases countless tons of oxygen into the atmosphere. Millions can fit in one drop of water of this type of phytoplankton. Prochlorococcus is probably the most abundant photosynthetic organism on the planet. Dr. Sylvia A. Earle, a National Geographic explorer, estimates that Prochloracus provides oxygen for 20% of our breaths. That's one in every five of the breaths that you take, you could consider coming from this type of phytoplankton. They are abundant and they are resilient, but they're also fragile in many ways. And just like other organisms, they rely on the oceanic ecosystem to thrive and create the oxygen that we kind of all love and need. We are killing this complex system. The phytoplankton and algae in the oceans create massive amounts of oxygen and sink the carbon in the case of plankton. Phytoplankton make oxygen and then consume carbon dioxide, just like other plants that we know. Eventually, they die, but they sink to the bottom of the ocean. That's key. Thereby, they sequester carbon dioxide that we're releasing. It's interesting how trees and forests get a lot of attention in this regard. It's not unwarranted as rainforests are predicted to create somewhere around 20% of our, 28% of our oxygen still the big picture tells a different story because when plants on land grow and they live they use large amounts of co2 from the air we know that this is wonderful we need them for this reason you know among a myriad of others no arguments there however people forget that when plants on land die naturally or at the hands of humans, most of that CO2 is then released back into the atmosphere by being burnt, decomposing, or being eaten by fungi, bacteria, or other microorganisms. The same isn't true of the ocean's ecosystem. The oceanic system is our best friend by taking carbon out of the air and keeping it out of the air. Without a healthy balance of fish, dolphins, sharks, etc., this life-giving and global warming protection system is in jeopardy. Then factor in the pollution pressures on the ecosystem and you can see the type of fire we're playing with. What What most don't know is that larger fish, the ones humans like to eat and the predatory animals that end up in bycatch, they feed on smaller animals, smaller animals than themselves. And a lot of those fish, humans do not eat, or they at least don't eat as often. Thereby, they keep the number of animals that actually eat plankton and tiny organisms in balance. The sharks and the dolphins, etc., they keep the animals that eat plankton and other tiny organisms in balance. They also contribute significantly to the cycling of nutrients within the ecosystem. Their waste products and decaying matter from these animals release nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus into the water, which are essential for phytoplankton and algae growth. These larger marine animals act like a helpful spoon, mixing up the waters and the nutrients found at different depths and helping balance out the population levels of all marine life this kind of makes sense. The ocean's a big place. It's a deep place. A lot of these organisms that we rely on are, are these microscopic organisms. They're at the top. They need nutrients. You know? And wh- wh- who gives it to them? A lot of it is larger animals that are going to deeper depths, coming up, going to the coral reefs, eating different food, defecating, dying, whatever. And All this mix, this churn of material that they help provide, because the ocean currents don't provide this on their own, not nearly enough of it, that provides for this ecosystem that helps sequester carbon and give us oxygen. We aren't even totally confident of how marine animals, plants, and microorganisms stay in balance with each other. We don't even completely understand it. That means we aren't sure what will happen eventually with our overfishing or how we can fix issues now or or in the future. But let's just use our logic. Messing with the fundamental players in the ecosystem will lead to trouble. One intriguing and well-orchestrated study from Yale University measured how much carbon plants retain within a controlled marine ecosystem, both with and without predatory animals, you know, larger animals. The study found that 40% more carbon was retained when predators were present than when they were taken away. They found that this was, quote, owing primarily to greater carbon storage in grass and below ground plant biomass driven largely by predatory, non-consumptive fear effects on herbivores, end quote. Translation, when small herbivore fish have to worry about predators, they can't eat plants, and phytoplankton and such, until their heart's content and less carbon is sequestered. I bring up this example not because it would be the main factor in our carbon sequestering and oxygen creation fears for the oceans, that's still going to be mostly related to bacteria and phytoplankton, but because it shows how removing predator, larger marine animals will affect the amount of carbon sequesters in ways that are not obvious, The complex marine food web, which includes predator-prey relationships involving fish, dolphins, sharks, etc., helps regulate the population of many different organisms. We need a balanced food web to support a healthy ecosystem and ensure that various species are present to contribute to nutrient cycling, oxygen production, and carbon storage. We can already see an unbalanced ocean food web and envision a destroyed one eventually. We will touch upon this point a bit later. Still, it's essential to understand that most seafood is a resource, not a commodity. And just like in countless other examples through man's history, when an asset isn't owned by anyone, no one seems to care about taking care of it. This is called the tragedy of the commons, a term coined by William Forrester Lloyd in 1833. Think about it for a second. It makes sense. The tragedy in reference here occurs when each individual perceives their actions as having negligible impact on the resource, assuming that others will bear the collective burden of responsible use. As more people adopt this mindset and exploit the resource, its capacity for replenishment becomes overwhelmed, leading to depletion, environmental degradation, or resource collapse. So, for one, we're up against human behavior. We're also up against those who claim to help us. Just look at the EII, the Earth Island Institute. Um, I'm going to mention just one of these organizations right now. Uh, There's lots of them. This could be an episode all on its own. This environmental activist group, their words, not mine, environmentalist activist group, Um. Them, among other things, they tell us which tuna is quote-unquote dolphin safe. Uh, I was going to ignore many other sketchy stuff they've been accused of. You can Google that if you'd like. However, I will share that Sylvester Pokajom, who is the managing director of the National Fisheries Authority, uh, which accounts for 20% of the world's tuna catch, said, quote, there are no EIA observers whatsoever. I am 110% confident. I know they don't have observers. They are telling lies. They don't have any program in place, end quote. And uh, it's not like he is the only person trying to warn all of us about the deception that we face in the grocery store. There's also the example of Mexico, wonderfully so, reducing their dolphin mortalities to historic lows by adding marine safety features, safety measures to their fishing practices. Yet, Mexican fishing companies didn't want to pay for this dolphin safe label, probably because they felt they already met the standard and that supporting this sketchy group would be supporting dubious activities. The World Trade Organization eventually decided the quote-unquote dolphin-safe label unfairly discriminated against Mexican tuna as they were fixing their fishing practices, yet still couldn't get any recognition due to this non-payment. The Earth Island Institute lobbied heavily against this decision. (laughs) All right, I don't want to be too much of a keyboard podcast warrior here. But uh, after looking into all of this, it just doesn't add up. It, it, it doesn't seem like tuna are be protected at all. It does seem like consumers can easily be tricked. And uh, quote unquote, dolphin safe in no way means that dolphins are not being killed alongside your tuna. Just know that. All right. Let's not get stuck in the weeds here or the seaweed here. The important part is that tuna is still being decimated and it's hard to know who to support. All right. Some other fun information is that we trawl 3.9 billion acres of the seafloor annually by some estimates. Uh, But it's all just a disgraceful number. I am told this is equivalent to uh, 4,300 soccer soccer fields of seafloor every minute. These trawls can be as tall as a 10-story building, and it is what it sounds like. We just catch up every damn thing possible in those nets, killing most of the creatures, and as the nets scratch and dig their way along, they destroy the seafloor habitat. Anything that isn't commercially viable has a slight chance of living. Turtles, fish that are too young, fish that are too small, coral, rays, dolphins, sharks, and even birds, like I mentioned before. I cringe at killing off creatures with such incredible intelligence, such as dolphins and octopus, majestic turtles, beautiful coral, just so we can take some of the catch home for dinner. This is the type of information that starts to hurt my brain. It's one thing to fish animal X to near extinction, this is the type of human behavior I've heard about my whole life. But in so doing, we're killing off animals Y, W, and Z as well as essential habitats? Again, this is understa- it's understandable to protest that cows, pigs, and chickens live and die as they do. But when land animals are slaughtered for meat, you don't actually kill off a wolf, a deer, a couple critical vultures, a squirrel, a handful of plants, and trees in the process not even in the most evil of factory farms. And sure, we can discuss methane from cows. Let's have that conversation by all means. But at the end of the day, the implications are not in the same ballpark. This ecosystem is too valuable to risk. We are talking about a system that stores 20 times the amount of carbon that the forests on Earth do. Like I said, an estimated 93%. An ecosystem that creates the aforementioned 50% plus of the oxygen we breathe. People call the Amazon the lungs of the world, but it's actually the big blue. It's the lungs of the world and our best helper in fighting global warming, exacerbating CO2. I'm repeating all this information because it's worth repeating. Okay. That was a lot of depressing news just thrown at you. It was chaotic. It's overwhelming. To be honest not even confident i presented it well it's just just too much uh, i do know though that this information should startle you it startled me and that's just a few paragraphs worth of information we have plenty more to explore actually i i take that back i really do want this information to totally startle you this information what we will discuss and what you just heard should make you furious. It should make you think about dinner differently, your world differently, your dollars differently. Here's the rub. Here's what else I can't stop thinking about. See, this isn't like global warming. This this isn't akin to bitching about the CO2 exhaust from modern cars with catalytic converters. See, I believe that humans are contributing to global warming. But let's be honest. The world is, has experienced many times In our past, that were incredibly colder and warmer than it is now, and all that change occurred without humans. You can make an argument that we aren't the main factor behind changes in the temperature. Or you can argue that we need fossil fuels and that drastic changes to our economies and ways of life aren't the correct path right now. It's not my argument, but I understand it. We need ways to transport ourselves. Green energy doesn't currently work everywhere and anywhere. We need to be able to turn the lights on. We do need industry for jobs, materials of life, etc. There are at least good reasons among the bad ones that we create greenhouse gases. That is not the case regarding what we're risking concerning seafood and the health of the oceans and therefore the world. For that reason, Maybe there is hope because this should be an issue anyone with any political leaning can understand and get behind. We're killing the oceans. We're killing off the fish. We're dismantling the ecosystem that takes out CO2 and gives us O2. We're polluting our water in in ways orders of magnitude more tangible than any CO2 we release into the air from our activities on the land. This is bigger than the mistakes we make with fossil fuels. This is bigger than oil spills. It's bigger than Slaschenberg-tastics in the Amazon. It's bigger than more powerful storms in the Gulf of Mexico. It's bigger than uncontrollable wildfires in Canada. It's bigger than the air quality in Mexico City. It's bigger than droughts in California. It's bigger than floods on the Yellow River. It's so big that it's really not up for debate. We are past that. It's paradoxically so big that most of us don't even see it, talk about it, think about it, or even know to do anything about it. It's almost like we can't see the elephant in the room because it's an inch from our noses, so all we see is gray. And why do we have this problem? Why are we losing this crucial planetary life support system? It's not because of overpopulation. It's not for creating the fossil-fueled energy necessary for making the world go round. It's not a regrettable side effect of creating the industries that give us lots of jobs, move us into a modern world, and give us the things that make everyday human life easier, enjoyable, and possible, regardless of whether we can accomplish that in a better way, you know which we can. It's not because we want nice things in our lives. It's not because we don't know exactly what we're doing or agree on how to do it better. It's not because we don't have the technology to fix the issues yet. Honestly, and this may seem downright odd, when you dig deep and consider everything from a 30,000-foot view, it's not even really driven by greed. It's not because of greed. If greed was the motivating factor, then, then there are better industries ones not subsidized into profit to be in. It's hard to understand, but greed is, in a messed up way, somehow a side effect of why we do this. Don't misunderstand; greed plays a part in condoning this global, in condoning this as a global community. But greed isn't the initial why behind our endless and destructive search for seafood. It's frankly just so ever slightly downstream of the why. This is the hardest. This is the hardest part to grasp but i think i think it is what underlies some of the overall weirdness of this situation let's look at an even bigger picture one th- let's look at an even bigger picture than one concerning money money is a made up resource it's a relatively recent invention in the terms of human history Human history is replete with instances of societies overhunting and gathering over overgathering for preferred foods, often leading to resource depletion due to limited knowledge or care for sustainable practices. If greed was one's initial impetus, fishing is an odd business to pursue, especially in the west. It's a difficult business with difficult means of getting what you're after. It's messy. Seemingly only profitable with subsidies. Oh, and by the way, that thing that makes you money is disappearing due to the way you go out and find it. And the only way to address that would be some kind of world cooperation that doesn't currently exist. If it was pure greed, people would care about their money source more, wouldn't kill it off, and would f- wouldn't think and would think a little in the long term. If greed was the deep-down impetus that fuels the desire to fish, then it wouldn't be an industry that doesn't turn much of a profit, let alone break even, without the you know the aforementioned $35 billion it receives worldwide in government subsidies for, quote-unquote, food security. Greed isn't the reason why the Japanese trap and murder thousands of dolphins and sharks each year, seeing them as competitors for what's rightfully theirs the fish of the seas. See, this is the most challenging aspect to wrap one's mind around. Greed is complicated, can be hidden from ourselves. It's dark. It's usually undesirable. But when I look at all this information, I realize that the impetus underpinning the gross self-destructive system it was so simple and unadorned that it didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Why, in the holy hell of this beautiful world, are we actively, knowingly, unarguably, and collectively committing this kind of global ecocide and potential suicide? We're doing it because we like the taste of water creatures. That's really it. This behavior can be seen as related to an instinctual response to ensure the availability of familiar and favored sustenance. While profit-seeking plays a role, it's worth considering that pursuing preferred food sources could be a more basic driving force behind overfishing. It's rooted in our innate biological and cultural inclinations. This issue is so daunting, not because we have to tackle greed. We actually can do that and have done so in the past. It is somewhat easier to address because we all recognize it as a negative attribute. Greed usually is handled by regulating and disabling the greedy people in question. This issue is a storm of craziness because we must tackle telling people they can't enjoy the particular stuff they put into their mouths. Not everyone is darkly greedy, but everyone participates in, or at least wants to participate in, the endeavor of eating tasty things numerous times each and every day. Let that sink in for a second. Okay, the second's up. Let's change lanes for a bit. As mentioned before, this episode would not just be destruction porn. The collapse of the oceans was not the only reason I wanted to make this episode. There were others. One is more personal and somewhat amusing. share a somewhat digressing and totally irrelevant point in the big picture that must be gotten out of the way in the name of transparency and fun. It's also part of the impetus for this article and episode, if not the impetus. You see, I loathe seafood. I mean purely as a food, I don't loathe the actual creatures themselves. It's not that I just dislike the taste I uh, literally cannot be around it. I don't wish to be in the same room as it. Fish markets are a personal no-fly zone for me, with mental fighter jets roaming my lizard brain, ready to shoot me down should I ever accidentally enter the airspace of deceased water creatures. Should my wife like to have some? It must be prepared and hopefully eaten outside. The aroma is that powerful to my senses. It makes me feel unwell. Don't even think about cooking seafood in a pot and then rinsing it off and handing it to me for my meal. It must be power-washed, or better yet, disposed of. I will taste it. I, I mean, seriously, I, I will taste it. That sounds like rambling hyperbole, but it's my God-given cross to bear. However, after doing this research, I realized I've been released from the guilt of my any personal involvement in this destructive system, so in that way, it seems... I actually have a gift I wished more were also given. It's a wild and odd reaction that I've had my whole life. I'm fully aware that it's bizarre and childish. Uh, It's a feeling that transcends a food preference. See, I dislike broccoli. We all have something like that. Broccoli has a texture and a taste I do do not find pleasurable. But I can be in the same room as broccoli. I can exist within range of its aroma just fine. Throw it in some soup with a barrage of cheese, and it becomes an enjoyable meal. Not so with seafood. And I mean any seafood, not just fish. If it comes out of the water, no, no, no. It triggers something akin to a disgust and danger response somewhere within my subconscious. You might as well be asking me to consume products left in a Chernobyl grocery store. Please know this is not something I'm proud of, even though my previous words slightly make it seem otherwise. If there was a costly procedure I could undergo that would change this, I would consider it. Or at least I would have before creating this episode. I know I am missing out on a large swath of eating experiences, and I like to eat. I like to cook as well. I am missing out, and I know it. I looked into whether there was some kind of genetic variation I could have that could result in such an odd reaction, like how some people eat cilantro and taste soap, but I found nothing concrete. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe one day I could go through a CRISPR routine and be rid of this abnormality. Doesn't look like that will ever be an option. I also looked up ways to overcome strong dislikes of certain foods. You get mostly advice about exposure therapy and different dishes and recipes. Yeah, I've been there, done that. I don't care how fresh the stuff is. Sidebar, I am told that if fish is good, it doesn't taste fishy. That's a red flag for the whole type of food. But I just end up chalking this up to my Slovak and Irish genes. One half of me blames the fact that my ancestors hailed from a poor landlocked country. The other half blames the British for controlling my ancestors' water race, creating a small island island, you know, those things surrounded by water of people who don't regularly eat the seafood that existed all around them. Even during famine, the Irish fishing rights were usually only for the landlords, who were often absentee landlords who lived in England. But I digress, that's better off a topic for a separate episode. Anyway. I share those overly personal anecdotes to explain why I've always been deeply intrigued by this food and to partly explain why I want to dive deep. I want to know more about this food. This food evokes such an odd reaction in me. I've often wondered how and why people eat this stuff. I've literally wondered why we don't just leave the world of water to the fish. Didn't we evolve out of that salty stuff for a reason? Everyone has different tastes, but knowing how much the world likes this food source, I that food source that I cannot go near, uh, it's like hearing that most people enjoy getting paper cuts on their cuticles. It doesn't compute. So, uh, voila, I had to know more, and this deep dive is the result. So, but anyway, getting back to the main stuff. Outside of survival needs. We all get that. These questions have always nagged at me. Uh, It may come across as quite weird, but I genuinely marvel at how so many people look at the realm of salty water, the domain we animals decided to leave behind approximately 430 million years ago, the realm consisting of water we cannot consume nor survive in, a much unexplored realm some say we know less about than outer space that is filled with seemingly alien creatures and unfathomable depths and untold secrets. We look to that for our food. Don't people know we have used the oceans as our dumping grounds for quite some time? Don't people know that this is where much of our everyday trash, industrial waste, agricultural runoff, and more radioactive waste than you'd ever like to think about ends up? Should we really be consuming its produce? What are the consequences for us, the oceans, the marine life, and the planet as whole? And of course, I thought about what is the actual history of this practice we call fishing? As is the case with most things, it is crucial and downright exciting to examine the history of the subject before we digest the modern situation and implications. That's going to become a a pattern on remedial polymath. Should that that annoy anyone, my apologies. It truly helps to understand topics, especially when details of the history may surprise one and ignite a re-examination of our current actions. Maybe things have not always been like this. Perhaps we can look to the past to inform our future. Okay, let's look at the history of fishing. It may come as no surprise that fishing has been a part of human existence and a meaningful source of protein for some time now. Yet at the same time, And this may come as a surprise. Many aspects of fishing are, in the scope of human history, a brand new thing. That's worth repeating. Fishing and how we do it is a brand new endeavor. It is simultaneously an ancient and recent activity. Many of the relatively new aspects can be shocking when we eventually examine some of the statistics regarding how much we've been able to extract from our oceans in so short of a time. But as always, as best we can... Let's begin at the beginning. The first evidence we have in which we can surmise our our ancestors fished for food dates back to an astounding 500,000 years ago. Oh, I almost read it wrong. Can't believe it. We weren't even Homo sapiens yet. We were Homo habilis and Homo erectus. In archaeological digs, we find fossils, fish fossils, alongside those of the proto-humans that date from that period. However, that's about all the evidence we have. We know little else besides the fossils being found alongside human remains. I think few would doubt this is evidence enough that they fished. It would be hard to imagine that these people would not try to eat this food source that they could so clearly see existing in rivers, lakes, and the beaches of the oceans they lived near. It would also not be a stretch to think that they could occasionally be successful at it. Um, you know, it would, they would—they would know that bears know the fish are there and that the fish are yummy. Why wouldn't our distant ancestors also attempt to eat them, regardless of their level of intelligence compared to modern man? All you would need to to successfully catch a fish would be patience and your hands, a practice still used to catch catfish and some river fish in different parts of the world. You add in a crude spear, it becomes even easier. But of course, while that information is interesting, it isn't too relevant to to today's discussion. But what is relevant appears a bit later, in the remains of a Homo sapien from around 40,000 years ago, known as the Taianyan Man, whose remains were found near Beijing. There is evidence that he regularly ate freshwater fish. It is pretty well established that while people of that time probably lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and traveled around a bit, they did have some semi-permanent settlements. In what was perhaps perhaps their version of the garbage, we find discarded fish bones and cave paintings showing that they fished fresh and saltwater fish. In the south of France, some excellently preserved cave paintings are around 16,000 years old and clearly offer a variety of marine animals and scenes of hunting with barbed poles, which we would call a harpoon these days. It is pretty safe to say that seafood was part of these people's diets if they decided to immortalize it within their art, and it probably provided a meaningful source of protein for them. Fishing wasn't exclusive to Homo sapiens either. We know this because in Neumark Nord in Germany, the remains of Neanderthals from 30,000 years ago uh, were found alongside the remains of fish, replete with scales still noticeable, (laughs) and with crude tools that may have been used for fishing. Don't be bored by this information, nor should you be. Just stay with me. It's necessary to set up the more pertinent information. So far, we've discussed subsistence fishing with relatively crude tools done in the shallows by people from long ago that left convincing but unintended evidence. Let's move on to something that more resembles the modern understanding of the act of aquatic calorie seeking. The Egyptians clearly show us that they were fishing circa 3500 BC, a fact we know primarily from extensive artwork and papyrus documents showing us them fishing with spears, nets, rods, lines, and even hooks, Um, From which from what we could tell, they all appeared on the scene at roughly the same time, all the different fishing tools. The life of the Egyptians revolved around the Nile River, which was full of fish. So it only makes sense that fish became a staple of their diets. They would eat it fresh and dry it to consume later. It was so important to to them that fish became a symbol of abundance and fertility, which isn't far off from what it would later symbolize in Israel due to a certain famous Jewish prophet, circa 0 to 33 AD. What was that guy's name? Anyway, the Egyptians would make boats from reeds so that they could fish from, fish from out the Nile and get away from the shore so as to increase their catch. We even have evidence from the 12th dynasty that they used metal hooks with barbs. We also have evidence from China around the same time that they were fishing similarly. It seems for them it was also an important part of the diets of those who lived near rivers and oceans. As with many things that originated in Egypt, the Greeks and the Romans also caught on afterwards. They also left us intricate writing about the practice, how they did it, and even how they looked upon the profession. The earliest such work we have is the Halictica, a treatise on sea fishing written by the poet Oppian of Coricus. Coricus. The means by which Appian tells us that they went after fish was with nets cast from boats, scoop nets, which were held open by a hoop, spears, tridents, and various passive traps, which worked while their masters slept. That's a quote. Appian's description of fishing with a motionless net is also fascinating. Here it is. Quote, The fishers set up very light nets of buoyant flax and wheel in a circle, around which they violently struck the surface of the sea with their oars and made a din with sweeping blow of poles. At the flashing of the swift oars and the noise, the fish bound in terror and rush into the bosom of the net, which stands at rest, thinking it to be a shelter. Foolish fishes, which, frightened by a noise, enter enter the gates of Doom. Then the fishers on either side hasten with the ropes to draw the net ashore. End quote. What's important from a historical perspective is that ancient, Greece, ancient Greek fishing, probably most ancient people anywhere at that time, often occurred in lakes and rivers. If it was in the ocean, it is clear that the ancient fishing boats were only used close to shore. From what we can tell, these fishing boats never had a mast or a sail. This means that while people certainly tried to get fish for their diets, it is doubtful that they could do it in mass from deep waters, instead just catching what they could close to the shore. It is unlikely that they could significantly affect the number of fish in the area or that fish greatly affected their lives. No doubt they enjoyed eating seafood and no doubt it was important to the fishermen, but it doesn't seem necessary for their economy or that they were calorically reliant on fish for survival. Now, This isn't to say that for coastal communities, it wasn't an important source of protein. Very probably, it was vital for many communities, but the Greeks also had diverse crops they grew and numerous types of livestock. Had the fish disappeared for some reason, it's highly doubtful there would have been a significant impact on people's ability to survive or on their economy. Interestingly, from what we can glean from certain writings that have been preserved, fishing and fishermen seem to have been looked down upon by looked down upon by others in their society as it was physically demanding and it was not lucrative. It appears to have been a job in which the lower classes would participate. It was a simple and unsophisticated endeavor, and the well-off Greeks always aimed to appear sophisticated. This only helps the argument that it wasn't an important food source for the population. We think this was true because, in his work Politics, Aristotle describes the classes of his society and mentions the fishermen were of the lowest class. Even in the Odyssey, Homer describes fishermen as simple people who were not the type who would interfere with the lives of important people such as heroes or kings. As we move into the Roman period, it may be no surprise that things became more gripping, as much about the transition between the Greek and Roman realities did. The importance and prevalence of fish in people's diets seemed to have increased, and the importance of seafood within the overall economy, which would span the entire Mediterranean, is undeniable. These transformations are important. Suddenly, Man didn't see the caloric potential hidden beneath the waves as something that would solely supplement diets dominated by other sources, nor was it mostly reserved for coastal communities or those living along large rivers such as the Nile. It has now evolved into something bigger. It became important and probably necessary for people of all types and locations and an important part of the economy um, that that would eclipse anything seen before in terms of fish. would also be the first type of fishing that would look slightly similar to our own, even though, as we will see, it was still different in numerous fundamental ways. Within the Roman realm, most of the population began to depend on fish as a noteworthy part of their subsistence. It's not so much that they relied on fish for their calories, for survival, but instead for their sense of culture and what made for a good meal in their eyes, and therefore along with cereals, wine, and vegetable oil, it became an essential part of the Roman economy. Whether it was preserved or fresh, it seems that fish were served in some form at nearly every table in the empire, especially if one was hosting. The rich sought out, sought out the rarest and tastiest types for themselves. At the same time, the poor seemed to have eaten more common types, either dried out or preserved in a way by being transformed into fish sauces. This author, this author, me, and most within the audience, you, would probably not do well relying on these sauces. But apparently, they were enjoyed the realm over. We know about four types of fish sauces, but garum was undoubtedly the most popular. It was made, get this, by fermenting the entrails of fish naturally, and then using salt to keep the process as safe from putrefaction as possible. No part about that translates to me as a natural process for food sourcing. No part about that communicates to me it could be anything but putrid. Regardless, they would take one part salt, eight part fish guts, and it could be from any type of fish from tuna to small river fish, and then dried in the sun for several weeks, stirring this mix daily. Then they'd strain the remaining concoction, which somehow resulted in a clear liquid, which would then be stored in amphorae, the large shipping containers of the day, and shipped to anywhere in the empire. Garum was used as a condiment, sauce, or ingredient in many of the Romans' favorite staple dishes. It was highly prized, but ubiquitous, and used by all classes, separated by the quality level. Imagine if there were levels of ketchup one could buy, and which which kind you possess signaled your level of wealth. Of course, one has to imagine the taste of Heinz dwarfing whatever garum tastes like. But again, That could be my perspective on things getting a bit out of hand. Many Asian cultures use similar fish sauces to this day. And some even say that Worcester sauce is similar in tastefulness and savory flavor. Although the potential of that comparison being right kind of boggles my mind. What isn't disgusting about the increase in the demand for fish caused by the sauces Made from these entrails is the effect it had on the economy and the general circulation of goods, which is paramount for any thriving and stable society, even one as large as the Roman Empire. Fish, quote-unquote, factories were made to meet the demand because commercial deep-sea fishing still had not yet emerged. Slight pivot may now be helpful, and we're going to take it. Uh, Don't worry, we'll continue discussing fishing during the Roman world a bit, but still, we need to move on by discussing humans' relationship with different types of seafood in general. One of the problems about fishing, which will become even more evident as we move closer to the present day, is that unlike crops or livestock, which are commodities, seafood is usually a resource. No one usually owns it. In most cases, you grab what you can from beneath the waves, and it's yours. And yes, we should make note that this wasn't universally true. In Roman law, there was total or partial ownership of natural resources such as lakes, river sections, or coastal areas. Often, wealthy landowners would also have fishing rights when they owned these resources, and at times could prohibit others from fishing on their land. But the Romans were also careful to have a lot of public land so that anyone could fish. They even enforced limits on how much people could fish from specific areas to not overfish in that location. They would even grant permits to people for a certain amount of fish. They would issue fines or penalties if you broke the regulations for a particular fishing area. It seems they would even have local officials officials, Sorry. Local officials, known as fishery overseers, whose job was to adequately enforce the rules. Okay, two points on that. One, ancient Rome is remarkable in how it can startle you as you look into little things like this, which probably weren't in your history books or some documentary you've seen. You realize their society's similarity to our own, despite being a couple thousand years ago. It's just amazing. They genuinely loved their rules, organization, and efficiency. How they enforced it with their technology and with masses of illiterate people spread out for a long time in an empire stretching from Egypt to Scotland, it's mind-boggling. It should also be noted that the Romans were not alone, nor the first in having fish regulations. The Egyptians enforced fishing regulations on the Nile, and the Chinese did as well in their numerous waterways and coastal areas. But let's not get too bogged down in the specifics. We must also recognize that the fishing rights system was probably a result of the desire for class class and ownership distinction instead of some insight into the ecological dangers of overfishing. Point two on Roman fishing. While the idea of fishing rights and ownership of natural resources existed, seafood was still a resource. It only became a commodity once the fish were caught and dead. They were something out there in nature, to be brought back, not unlike something might mine out of a mountainside. It was a resource with an inherent value. Commodities are already owned, and their value depends on quality, the market, scarcity, etc. Understanding the difference between commodities and resources is essential, especially when discussing human attitudes towards fish and fishing. Without realizing it, almost subconsciously, humans treat and care about the classification differently. A fish and a cow are both living creatures that you can eat. Yet, one you own for its whole life, you care for it, you may have helped it be born, you feed it, you keep it safe, if for no other reason than if you don't, it will never be worth any money to you. You may even look it in the eyes. It's yours. No one treats fish like this, and we're talking about historically. And in the aggregate, I'm sure a blanket statement like that would upset some pet, uh, pet fish lovers out there. People just don't view or treat commodities or resources di- uh, similarly. This has consequential side effects. Just as humans usually don't care about the setting surrounding the mountain, if it contains a valuable resource, we will usually sacrifice all of it and keep at it until we think there is none left. Did this matter too much for the Romans in their time? No. Even if they didn't enforce any regulations, there wasn't a fear of running out of fish in the big picture. That would have been a laughable proposition to them. Um, remember the comparison for later. There is one meaningful way you can alter a human's relationship with seafood, and that's where fish farms come back into the discussion. That's why their arrival was a, su- a significant innovation we still employ today but we'll talk more about that in a bit. What's remarkable about our relationship with seafood is that it didn't change much from prehistory through antiquity. It only made significant changes once humans entered what we consider a more modern age. This is genuinely fascinating. Sure, the large empires made rules around it, increased the variety of ways of eating it, and and it became more of a staple for certain peoples. The nets and traps got a bit bigger, and the spears and rods, lines, made improvements. But it was nothing monumental, not compared to the changes in other aspects of life and technology. Mostly, people still fished in similar ways, on the same coasts, rivers, and lakes that they had for thousands of years. The significant change comes with fish farming, known as aquaculture. Now, there is a slight issue with semantics here. Humans have been creating man-made ponds and lakes to keep fish for eating for a long time. The ancient Romans, Chinese, and Egyptians did this. The Chinese seem to have been the most adamant about it. it. They even had fish swim in their flooded rice paddies as a means of fertilization. The Romans would even have fish ponds in their palaces, but those were for show, not for food. The Egyptians would divert the Nile into walled-off areas to store live fish for eating. Yet, while this certainly is a form of keeping live fish, it isn't the same as fish farming. While it's impressive for the ancients, it wasn't revolutionary in any meaningful way. It did not alter the way the vast majority of people fished or got their seafood. Some consider the real fish farms to be in Europe in the 11th century, when monasteries and royalty would create large man-made ponds to raise fish. They would often eat these on Fridays or for other religious purposes. These were very different than what the ancients were doing in many ways. They had sluices, channels, and weirs to control water flow and quality. They made enhanced feeding practices and importantly used selective breeding to enhance desired traits. They were truly farming the fish instead of isolating them in controlled areas to consume later. This is the truly intriguing thing to take note of. Modern fishing, including highly productive fish farming and fishing techniques that take people past the coastal areas into deeper waters to catch fish at a more industrial scale, is new to both humans and the oceanic ecosystems. Modern fish farms are recent innovations that seem to have first started in Germany in 1733. This is considered modern because the farmer who started this farm successfully fertilized gathered fish eggs and raised the fish that were hatched for food. So just like farmers plant seeds, around 300 years ago, humans started interacting with fish eggs, ensuring they're fertilized so that there is an adequate excess of fish to go to market. It is remarkable that this technology took this long to be realized. Long after land farmers were breeding plants together to increased hardiness and in whatever characteristics they'd like. It is even more remarkable that now that because now fish is one of the more common food sources in the world, and that at least half of that input now comes from farms. It all happened so quick. What's more mentally daunting is what we consider commercial fishing of the quote unquote normal kind, i.e., not from a farm. This is also a new phenomenon. Using large nets to catch catch fish in deeper waters in a manner just slightly similar to modern times started late in the 1400s. But really, we needed better net technology and most significantly, steam engines to make this happen in any significant way. After those came onto the scene, we saw the Dutch forming fleets of herring drifters enabling them to stay at sea for a long while, sending back their catches periodically. Great Britain began to use trawlers in the 17th century, but saw the practice take off in great numbers once they didn't have to rely on wind. You see, it was just hard to reliably do this kind of fishing with smaller nets and from boats that were reliant upon the wind. So, what we would recognize today as commercial fishing practices didn't start in earnest until the 1800s. In addition, it was mechanized winches and newer, eventually synthetic net materials that allowed these boats to fish where, when, and how they wanted. This outright changed the game, making massive nets capable of hauling weighty loads And being able to bring those loads to the boat with ease simply altered man's relationship with the bounty of the ocean forever. I am not sure why, but before my research, I would have thought that this was done, in some capacity at least, in ancient Rome. Not the part about steam engines and synthetic nets, of course, but the rest of it. However, Large-scale deep-water fishing is a recent revolution. Even when the Romans had a large seafood market, they didn't practice organized commercial deep-sea fishing. It's a new thing. While surprising, one has to imagine that this is a very good thing. Because if it started earlier, we would not have the variety of fish available that we do today. At least not around Europe. The point about the relative newness of fishing as we think of it today is revealed even more so when you consider recreational fishing, which was only first mentioned in the 15th century in an essay titled, Treatise of Fishing with Angle. That's with a bunch of Y's and double S's. Uh, It must be Celtic or Scottish. That's by Dame Juliana Berners, the Prioress of Benedictine Sopwell Nunnery. Sure, someone fished recreationally before this, but for it to take this long to even be mentioned, that's, that's just amazing. It really just shows you how this just wasn't in the zeitgeist at that time. So when someone tells you that the oceans will be all right and that your menu, that your menu options won't change because humans have been doing this forever, just tell them this history. It is new. If we don't change our ways, it will become a fad in the grand scheme of things. It will become a thing for the history books and not your belly. Okay, let's let's discuss what has been going on recently. The rest of the story is a bit more predictable and a bit more effed up. In the late 19th century, we got the steam engine and the ability to create fishing nets that were from synthetic materials, throw in the technology to actually haul in these ridiculously massive nets, and we genuinely have a new world. Now, fishing boats, organized into fleets and run by large companies, could go anywhere in the world, and they could stay at sea for extended periods. These innovations increased fishing efficiency, temporarily at least, and allowed fishermen to explore previously inaccessible waters. As the 20th century progressed and this technology became available to everyone, commercial fishing expanded into a global endeavor. Eventually, technology advanced even further, fueled by innovations that the world wars brought us. Suddenly, fishing boats had tools their forefathers couldn't even imagine, such as sonar, radar, GPS, and spotter planes to look for fish from the air. It would be an understatement to say that this made locating and catching fish easier. By the 1960s, fishing boats had tools that made their quest somewhat of an unfair fight. Throw in refrigeration, improved transportation, globalization, and increased wealth worldwide, and BAM! Now, any fishing company can export their seafood to distant markets that don't even need to be near water. And we have a seafood industry that is even more profitable and ubiquitous. The world's population and taste for fish grew to new heights. This is why the average annual seafood consumption per person has doubled since 1970. Unfortunately, the attitudes toward how to treat the ocean's ecosystems did not evolve. With increased efficiency, eventually, concerns about overfishing made their first appearance. The ability to catch vast quantities of fish led to the depletion of many fish stocks. It became evident that the world's oceans were not an endless resource, and sustainable fishing practices became a pressing issue. It wasn't a secret. People could see what was happening and what would happen and began to sound the alarm. In the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, efforts to combat overfishing gained momentum. International agreements, regulations, and the promotion of sustainable fishing practices began to pop up. This is when we finally do hear some good news. In 1994, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Seas went into enforcement. UNCLOS established the legal framework for managing and conserving living marine resources, including fish stocks, within exclusive economic zones, EEZs, on the high seas. Then there was the United Nations Fish Stock Agreement, which went into force in 2001, it established principles for sustainable management and called for the precautionary approach to fisheries management. In 1975, we got the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, SITES. It deals with endangered species and aims to regulate the international trade of certain fish species threatened by over-exploitation. Yada, 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 I could go on. There are more regulations and oversight committees created they all had excellent aims, and some positive results were seen. The number of fish discards thrown overboard back, uh, dead or alive, which we touched upon earlier, decreased from around 13 million tons yearly to 8.5 million tons annually. While any millions of tons of discarded fish it feels like too much, at least it did go down. But these results and data points start to get downright confusing based on what you're looking for. Consider this information from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO. The percentage of fish stocks, the percentage of stocks fished to biologically unsustainable levels increased from 10% in 1974 to 34.2% in 2017. However, The data also tells us that the maximally sustainably fish stocks rose to 59.6% in 2017. This is partially a reflection of the regulations and the oversights we discussed. But what does this all really mean? This means that both sustainable and unsustainable fishing activities are increasing. How is this possible? Fish farms, mostly. And the species that pay the cost are the non-commercial species. We have reached the limit of harvesting fish from the open ocean. Without real sustainability options, we will never see growth in those types of wild fish caught again. So let me make this clear. There have been some improvements and some people are working very hard to do the right thing. It is not all doom and gloom. Many countries, often in the West, are doing the right thing and monitoring their fishing companies as best they can. But after looking into this, I came away with some thoughts. A lot of the growth in the sustainable amount of fish species is due to fish farming. It's due to many species, those that can thrive in that situation, becoming commodities and not being resources. That is great, and it showcases an excellent way to manipulate personal greed into a communal positive. However, not not only are there only a few types of fish this currently applies to, which we will cover in the next episode, stay tuned. But those fish then don't interact with the massive ecosystems that is our ocean when they're in a fish farm. We lose most of the benefit and positive side effects they provide for the wider world. Remember, we're almost out of tuna, and that story also happens for other species as well. With all those good intentions and developments, the percentage of fish stock overfished worldwide between 1974 and 2008 went up from 47.9% to 65.8 percent. Another thing to look at is who implements and enforces these attempts to rein in the fishing industry worldwide. The UN usually uses sanctions and slaps on the wrist to try and implement these changes. It's just too large an issue for them to create real change. Ask Ukrainians what they think about UN resolutions and their sanctions effects on their lives. Some countries do have better enforcement off their coastlines but we need this to be a worldwide effort. After all, fish don't stop swimming at borders. Asian countries account for 74.5% of all motorized global fishing vessels, followed by America at 11.9%, Africa at 9.8%, and Europe at 3.4%. This doesn't reflect the change in percentages of consumption, but just who is doing the fishing. Still, It does give you an idea of who would really need to change their tactics first and foremost. But the UN's reach into these cultures, economies, and ways of life isn't enough. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Policing won't fix the issue, nor should it. This clearly needs to be a bottom-up as opposed to top-down transformation. China and the A- and the EU have made efforts to not increase their fleets. But this is like saying, I'm bleeding to death, but maybe it'll be okay because I stopped the increase in blood loss flow. The blood loss is steady now. I did my part. No, no, no. We're still bleeding, and we know what bleeding leads to. It gets all the more infuriating when you consider the $35.2 billion a year in subsidies the worldwide fishing industry receives, with $22.2 billion of that given to activities that enhance capacity. So, $22.2 billion of the $35.2 billion of those subsidies are given to activities that enhance capacity for fishing. What can the UN do to to address that glaring evil statistic? Well, if there was anywhere to start, one would think it's with that. It might be with these government subsidies, where you're putting the money, what you're using it for, what you're rewarding. Modern history shows that clearly these approaches aren't working. Consider this. Governments subsidize the fishing industry with all that cash to enhance their capacity. Yet the effective capture per unit per sorry, the effective capture per unit of effort of most countries with fishing fleets is one-fifth its value of 1950. Translation: Fleets must expend five times more effort today than in 1950 for the same catch with all of the technological improvements it doesn't mean anything if what you're searching for isn't there and yet we say through our governments here's more money for less fish go get it it's 100% undeniably insane and oh yeah let's not forget that all this data i just threw at you is related to worldwide legal fishing we aren't even sure what's happening with the legal fishing data data wise except that the FAO is convinced it is increasing. On a website for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, there is a sentiment that reflects well on my central revelation about fishing. There is a senseless race to the bottom by oversized fleets seeking to increase or sustain capacity without a clear economic rationale the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development is saying there is no economic rationale. That's not even considering rationales related to non-economic issues. Now, I want to circle back to what scares me most about this situation. All this information reveals that this dire situation is unlike any other we face today. This isn't like global warming. It's not like factory farming. It's not like droughts, hurricanes, floods, etc., It's not even about taking food out of people's mouth In its potential reach. It stands alone with its potential implications for CO2 increases and O2 decreases. It's potential to reshape coastlines, destroy economies. And uh, we will get into this in the next episode, reduce human health on a personal level. Of course, Who knows what other effects all this could have? And all of this is because of fish. We can't seem to deal with the situation for some very simple reasons. We can't see it in front of us because it's not happening anywhere we inhabit but in our oceans, which 99.9 of us will only experience waist deep. We can't address it adequately because it goes deeper than greed, stupidity, or ignorance. That's why it scares the hell out of me. It comes down to putting tasty food in our mouths and bellies. It comes down to something we all do every day, everywhere. Its menace lies in its unsophistication. We need a real awakening to address this issue. We can do it. But it isn't a lamely, pithy statement when I assert it will take everyone. It won't begin with changes concerning big businesses, the UN, greedy a-holes running shady companies, new taxes, rules, or enforcement ideas. It will take everyday people caring about their mouth pleasure choices differently. Sound weird? Yeah, I think most real awakenings always do sound strange at first. I would like to end the uh, the episode with another story this one is pretty epic The history of the New York oyster is a history of New York itself, its wealth, its strength, its excitement, its greed, its thoughtfulness, its destructiveness, its blindness, and as any New Yorker will tell you, its filth, end quote. That is from New York, The Big Oyster by Mark Kurlansky. Everyone seems to use this quote when you look into the story about New York's past with oysters and for good reason. Here are some more quotes. Jonathan Swift, the Irish author born in 1667, quipped, he was a bold man that first ate an oyster, end quote. Tom Robbins, the American author, reflected that, quote, eating an an oyster is like French kissing a mermaid, end quote. Yet it's Ted Danson of Cheers fame whose quote illuminates best. He told us, quote, Oysters are the canaries in the coal mine of the world's waters as they are sensitive to temperature, pollution, and other changes. End quote. Maybe, though, he should have says, said people's treatment of oysters is the canary in the coal mine of the world's waters. This may be best exemplified by the history of New York City and its oyster population. This is a story worthy of an episode itself. So, Should this brief version entice you, I highly encourage researching it a bit. Um, One can find many websites and even podcasts that examine this fascinating historical story. Um, The dollop has recently done a great two-parter just on the New York oysters, and uh, it's hilarious. The lower Hudson estuary that makes up the waters surrounding New York City once consisted of 350 square miles of oyster beds. Many biologists believe that those waters claimed half of the world's oyster populations. Just right there, in New York City. And not just any oysters, but the largest. And they really could dwarf what you think an average oyster is today. And they had the tastiest. In fact, Ellis Island was once called Little Oyster Island. And Liberty Island, you know where the statue is, was Great Oyster Island. The Dutch, who first established European roots in what would one day become New York City and initially called the city New Amsterdam, were flabbergasted by the unbelievable plentitude of oysters and the massive amounts of fish that would swim around their boats in the harbor. They also noticed the immaculate waters of the bay. Little did they know that the quantity and variety of fish, plus the cleanliness of the water in general, Was mainly due to the oysters you see oysters are a unique species to say the least the residents around new york harbor had no idea how blessed they were they couldn't comprehend precisely what services these creatures were doing for them because it just wasn't obvious to them the inputs that allow for the balance and prosperity of ecosystems rarely are obvious it truly is wild and i had no idea about this But a single oyster can filter and clean approximately 30 to 50 gallons, that's 75 to 190 liters of water per day, a single oyster. Oysters are rather remarkable filter feeders and their ability to remove particles, algae, and contaminants from water is extraordinary. They they reduce the organic load in the water, ensuring oxygen levels remain high creating an inviting place for life in general in their surrounding waters. Now imagine 350 square miles of packed oyster beds doing all that filtering. This is why the Dutch, upon first arriving, were flabbergasted by the amount of aquatic life in the pristine waters around what would become Manhattan Island. In addition to filtering the water and doing the heavy lifting when it came to habitat creation for the area, oysters live in oyster beds, which are reef-like structures on the seafloor or in in estuaries. As you can imagine, when you have half the world's oysters in one location, the oyster beds they create will significantly influence the harbor. They get huge. They were huge. They protected from storm surges and they performed erosion control. They were a natural barrier that protected the city and coastal communities from flooding and strong waves. They helped maintain the integrity of the coastal areas, including wetlands and marshes, very much like how coral reefs protect areas in the tropics. But the people of New York were interested in them for another reason. The reason is that they were tasty. It's hard to communicate just how much of an influence these little tasty treats had on the city. Before it was the city that never sleeps, it was the city that never ceases to eat. Oysters, that is. Oyster sellers were everywhere, and oysters were served in every tavern. Before there were hot dog carts, there were oyster carts so that residents could stop and eat some oysters without ever leaving the street. On Canal Street in the 18th century, you could have an all-you-can-eat oyster meal for six cents. There were oyster sellers for the wealthy and for the very poor. Everyone enjoyed them, and they were served in any way possible, in every way possible: fried oysters, stewed oysters, scalloped oysters, oyster pie, which whatever that is, fish, chicken, beef, sor- served with oyster sauce, etc. The list seems endless. Delmonico's, which is considered to be New York's first authentic restaurant and actually still exists, created an entire menu that was centered around oysters. You know, they had those fancy five, six course menus at the time, and like many fancy restaurants still do. It is believed they were the first to serve oysters raw on a half shell. This restaurant gained massive notoriety. It was the place to eat for anyone who could afford its menu. People everywhere knew of it and made a point to visit it if they were in town. Even Europeans knew of it and respected it. It was the first restaurant esteemed by upper-class Europeans in America. Until then, Europeans viewed American food skeptically and did not hold it in high regard. And all that change was fueled by the humble oyster. But, this is important to note, The oyster effect was even more significant than what they did for the harbor and for people's appetite. They created remarkable economic growth and helped to propel New York Harbor into being considered one of the world's very best. They also aided in construction because you can get a mortar paste that's rich in lime when you crush and burn oyster shells. Trinity Church was built with oyster shell mortar paste. You can just use their shells for construction yeah, you don't have to crush them up. You just use the shells. Pearl Street, happily named, name, was actually uh, initially paved with oyster shells. Although you can't get pearls from those oysters, which actually uh, upset the Dutch. But, uh, you know, they named it because of the oysters anyway. New Yorkers found themselves with extra shells that they would pile into heaps that could reach three or four stories high. I'm telling you, Google this. These piles of oyster shells are just mind blowing it just uh, how they got so high and i mean i know how they just they kept throwing them there but just you just don't know what you're looking at when you see them and to think that there was not just one place there were just huge heaps all over so they used all these extra oyster shells for landfills greatly extending the size of Manhattan you know if you know where wall street is In the south end of Manhattan, that used to be where the city's wall was. It was the end of the island. Oyster-laden fill was dumped into into the water from that spot, helping to extend its reach south into the water. However, I bet you can guess where this is going. New Yorkers did not treat their oyster paradise well. It took them a very long time to understand that returning oyster shells to the water where they were found was the best practice as oyster larvae like to make their homes on other shells, Even as early as the beginning of the 17th century, it was known one should probably eat oysters only during months with the letter R in the name. During the summer months, without the letter R, more bacteria are in the water because it's warmer, and hence there's more bacteria in the oysters as well. People knew it was a healthy practice even before there was any scientific knowledge to back it up. This summer, pause and harvesting also helped the oysters because it gave them a big chunk of time to reproduce and to grow without interference. So, while humans did not understand the science behind oysters or bacteria well, they were not ignorant of better ways to take care of this resource. It's not complicated. Just don't take more of the stuff you're taking too much of. In 1658, New Amsterdam's Dutch Council, that was, you know, again, that was New York City's original name, they limited where and when oysters could be harvested. Because even then they could see that this was valuable and that people were probably going at it too fast, too hard. In 1704, residents of Rockaway tried to regulate it so that only locals could harvest oysters. In 1715, collecting oysters during the warmer months was banned you know, but with little effect. That law was then suspended officially in 1807 against the wishes of many, but not, a, not against the wishes of enough. In 1854, the mayor, Henry Wood, tried to again restrict oyster collection as there was a cholera panic, and he understood there was a relationship between people eating the oysters and becoming ill when there was a cholera panic going on, or a panic of of any kind, any kind of sickness. But New Yorkers were so into this food source that they really didn't care, cholera or not, and one year later, they were back at it. Apparently, they even joked and called August, August to be able to eat their favorite meal. Uh, They snuck an R into the name so they could eat it. Even if they didn't understand why exactly, the mayor knew what he was saying. While we can't be sure of the stats for this time, of that, the mayor's time, we do know that by 1910, around 600 million gallons of raw sewage was being dumped into New York City, into the New York City water daily. Let me say that again. In 1910, 600 million gallons of raw sewage was being dumped into the waters around New York City every single day. So, with these attempts to stop people's behaviors, they just didn't matter. They could not stop people from harvesting their favorite culinary creatures, not even for a few months a year, when it was clearly apparent that they were dealing with a finite resource, or even when it directly threatened their health. They continued to dredge their harbors ruthlessly, destroying the habitats beneath the wave, making the chance for future marine life of any kind, not just the oysters, that much weaker. And you have to remember, they wanted to eat other things in the water besides oysters. They couldn't understand that the resource they were taking was not endless. Even though they knew it wasn't endless, it just They couldn't put this knowledge into any kind of understanding that would lead to behavioral changes. They didn't get that the health impact of eating this food could be altered by how they impacted its environment. They didn't understand how they'd impact their own culture through the desires of their stomachs. The story isn't just wildly interesting, it's a showcase for the issues at hand. If you're not a New Yorker, imagine you are one momentarily. Would this bother you? Wouldn't it be interesting that the decisions of people in the distant past have changed the reality of what can be on your local menu, the reality of what your seafood economy can be, the reality of what your coastland ecosystems are like, and how the natural protections against nature have been greatly reduced? And for what? I can hear the responses. Sure, maybe they took precautions when cholera was around that one time, but this is far in the past. Those people just didn't have the scientific knowledge we have. Plus, they weren't aware that overfishing led to collapse. They weren't aware that that was even a possibility. Not yet. This critique is overblown. But here's the thing. There were clear lessons that were ignored from overseas. The British and French also enjoyed oysters, and they had some beds along their coastlines, but nothing like it was in New York. They had enjoyed uh, oysters for a long time in those cultures, since the time of the Romans. But just like we learned about fishing, once the Industrial Revolution happened, their ability to fish and farm oysters increased substantially. Both cultures enjoyed them thoroughly, although interestingly, they were a luxury item for high society in Britain. At the same time in France, it was a more widespread, everyday culinary item enjoyed by people of all social backgrounds. Maybe not surprisingly, the British approached oyster harvesting like their American cousins. They would dredge and rake oysters from the seabed without regard to the ecosystem or sustainability. They had a zeal for the wild oysters in their midst and approached this resource aggressively with an, if I don't harvest it, you will, so I'm getting as much as I can mentality. For some reason, it makes sense that the French did not take the same approach as their sometimes friends, sometimes foes across the Channel. You don't have to have to have visited the countries to be aware that they approach and value food and the dining experience in a way that the Brits do not. Here's the important thing. The French decided to approach oysters through farming and cultivation. Oysters were grown in designated areas that were owned and controlled. They made oysters a commodity and not a resource. It led to a more sustainable oyster ecosystem. Another influence that the Industrial Revolution had on oyster harvesting was pollution, just like in New York. In Britain, in the 19th century, many coastal areas saw massive increases in pollution from industrial runoff, sewage, trash, etc. France industrialized just as Britain did, but they really liked their food. So they made policies and regulations to address water pollution so as to protect their beloved oyster beds. This was particularly effective on their Atlantic coast, where they successfully managed and conserved oyster populations despite pollution challenges. And while Britain never lost their oysters outright, they they harvested and polluted them to levels that made their previous eating habits no longer possible. That side story is essential to illustrate the New Yorkers had no excuse. They knew what was happening overseas and the success of the different approaches, but they could just not rein in their own polluting or oyster harvesting. That didn't stop them from eating them, regardless of the consequences. Those consequences were severe, real-world problems that affected you no matter what you ate or where you lived in New York City. We touched upon this, but... Cholera and typhoid fever were terrifying and they were clear and present dangers. In 1832, cholera killed 3,500 people. In 1854, it killed 2,500. In 1849, an outbreak killed more than 5,000. A wave of typhoid fever in the mid 1860s also killed around 5,000 people. You get the point. These diseases which survive and thrive in the water and can be transmitted via sewage, ravaged the city. And it gets even worse because they affect children and young adults heavily. Due to these epidemics, of which cholera and typhoid fever, those were not the only uh, epidemics, they weren't the only diseases that New Yorkers or Americans anywhere were dealing with. But think about this. In 1840, almost 2% of New York's newborns failed to reach their first birthday. Between 1840 and 1870, nearly 25% of 20-year-olds did not make it to the age of 30. That is scary stuff. You imagine it would shake awake a society. Sure, they didn't completely understand the science of what was happening initially attributing outbreaks to poisonous vapors or blaming the lifestyles of the poor or immigrants. But they knew some things. In fact, germ theory was well underway in the second half of the 19th century, with Louis Pasteur doing his fermentation studies in the 1850s. But on a more practical, everyday level, the people were not devoid of reason. They knew these outbreaks usually happened in summer. You know, those months with the letter R. They knew they would get sick often after eating oysters or other seafood from their polluted waters. They knew that oysters had a cleansing effect on the water they inhabited. This didn't take a genius or any leaps of faith. You can visually see the water around an oyster bed is more transparent. There's less organic waste floating in the water when they are present. Could you imagine being afraid for your life or... Those within your city, or being in positions of power and trying to mitigate the risks for your people, and just continuing to roll the dice and not only eat oysters, but remove them and their cleaning capabilities from your waters, your polluted waters. Yet the madness continued. The eating just went on. It wasn't until 1927 that they hit the proverbial wall and closed the last of their oyster beds. Not only were they basically gone, but they just became too toxic to eat. They finally realized that in 1927. They are now trying to foster oysters again, but not for consumption. The pollution is still too much, even 40 years after the passage of the Clean Water Act. That's not to say great strides haven't been taken in this area. Things are looking up for the waters of New York Harbor, very much so. But the damage was done in terms of oysters. And it will take a long time and a lot of resources to get even a bit of the past abundance again. And their past production and the past cleaning that they provided. But let's hope they get them back. Maybe they'll be able to get back the wide variety of other types of fish and sea life that once called the area home as well. If they get the oysters thriving again, they can still, they can still help clean the harbor even if you can't eat them. And if abundant, if abundant oyster beds can become common, this is so important, the city will be better protected against storms and the rising waters associated with climate change. But remember, the PCBs and heavy metals will still be in them, so you're not going to be able to eat them. Not for Not until we can just clean up all the water in the North Atlantic. I'd like to have some fun now and propose a potential conversation between a New Yorker around the turn of the 20th century and an alien who just wants to understand humans. My mind went to a completely silly scenario like this because eating this creature is so alien to me personally. But, you know, maybe this odd step back will be illuminating for others. But uh, either way, it might go something like this.
1: Greetings, Earthling. I have observed your kind in this large population center sitting upon one of Earth's best harbors. You all consume a fascinating organism called an oyster. I am intrigued by your culinary choices. Why do you consume the oyster's entire contents, even doing so raw?
0: Well, partner from the stars, there's something about the purity of the oyster's taste when it's raw that just tickles our fancy. It's like a piece of the ocean right on our plates. We love it.
1: I must admit, Earthling, I find it unusual that you consume the oyster's nervous system, their digestive system, and what is essentially their blood. Isn't this a bit, well, unusual and even unsettling for humans to do, especially when eaten raw and all in one gulp? You're eating a creature that's still alive.
0: Yeah, it does sound a bit unusual when you put it that way. But you see, we've got a taste for adventure and flavors that might seem peculiar to outsiders, Eating an oyster raw, including all those bits, it's like savoring a unique part of nature. We do think about what, we don't think about what it is, we like it, and that's all that matters.
1: I understand your love for unique experiences, but doesn't it seem a bit unusual to consume these parts of the oyster, particularly when health risks are involved? You've had serious diseases and death that could have been mitigated by avoiding this creature.
0: Well... There probably are some risks, sure enough. Everyone has heard about that. Sometimes those oysters can make you sick. And sure, afterwards you can make others sick. But we reckon the thrill, the taste, is worth the adventure. It's like sipping on the essence of the sea, right here in the city.
1: Understandable, but let me delve deeper. I've been observing your oyster consumption practices and the impact on your coastal regions. Why don't you cherish the oyster as a valuable commodity, like the French do, and take measures to ensure its a sustainability? You do realize they're not endless, right?
0: Uh, that's a mighty fine question, friend. You see, we do value our oysters in a way, but it just seems like there's so many, they, they seem infinite.
1: You are an intelligent creatures. You must know they're not literally infinite.
0: Well, yeah, nothing is infinite.
1: These oysters, they're fascinating. They create massive reef-like beds in the water that protects you. They clean the water, giving it more life and making it safer for all. Over-harvesting oysters can only harm your economy, coastline, and biodiversity. Doesn't that concern you?
0: Not really. What do you suggest? We not eat those tiny morsels? Have you even tried some?
1: That's quite the perplexing response. I do understand your love for oysters and the economy theory you call capitalism, but why persist in a behavior that leads, quite obviously, to a future where you won't be able to make money from them, let alone eat them? In the long run, it's just less profit overall.
0: Yes, but you have to make money now. We can't pay for our lives today with tomorrow, can we?
1: What an odd response. I mean, no. But what about your children? Or their children?
0: They'll figure it out. They'll just have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps.
1: I've heard this expression before in your culture. Of course, it's paradoxical. One cannot lift themselves off the ground by tugging on the straps of their shoes. It has nothing to do with caring for your descendants, environment, and economy.
0: This is America. We have a right to pursue happiness now.
1: Hmm. Another illogical response. Anyway, I've taken in all this information about your love for oysters, Earthling, but I must ask one final question. Your society is engaged in practices that will undoubtedly harm your environment, economy, and health. Why is this so? Do you require the oysters for your survival?
0: No, no, we have plenty of other food around us, but we like oysters. Eating them is pleasurable, it's good business, and they're right there.
1: This is quite peculiar. Our society also, at times, prioritizes somewhat illogical actions. Usually, however, these are driven by survival, reproduction, energy, shelter, or something necessary to life. Even greed for resources or wealth could be understood. But all this destruction for the taste of a food item that isn't needed for survival?
0: Well, we all die someday, but before then, Alien, we want to enjoy our meals. I think examining the story of the oysters in New York City is a great way to conclude because it helps to show the wild interconnections between marine life and how, when we mess with the balance and just destroy parts of it, that damage will creep into human life in a manner that is hard for humans to predict or to even comprehend. The oceans are the majority of the planet. They're so resilient. They are immense and they're life-giving. They are somehow both the fuel source and the forgiving suspension in the vehicle of life on our planet. We can do a lot to it before we feel the consequences, but we're at the end of that. The stories and information we review today show us that we play with fire when we aggressively damage it and pull out its resources and and in a way that has not a thing to do with running out of a food source. This will creep into our economy, our habitats, our protections, the health of our bodies, and even the composition of our air. And you don't have to be a consumer of seafood or be a fisherman for this to be true. To understand this, you don't have to believe in man-made global warming or take a side in the political debate over climate change. This affects everyone, and it looks like we're dooming ourselves to repeat the mistakes of the past. Only, just now, it'll be on a global scale. I think this story and silly thought experiment also places a nice bow on this episode because it shows how difficult this problem will be to fix. We can't address this issue well because it doesn't align with the typical negative traits we see in people and in society. A gambler's problem is a self-destructive love of the rush of winning and losing. It's chasing the joys of excitement, entertainment, hope, and adventure. It's enjoying quintessential human experiences to the point of self-collapse, to the point where those enjoyments aren't even available to the gambler anymore. In the world of overfishing, as in the realm of gambling, the core issue, the true initial impetus, isn't greed or ignorance, but something fundamentally human and intrinsic. It's the yearning for a simple pleasure. The pleasure of sustenance we enjoy and maybe find exotic, luxurious, or adventuresome to eat. Just as the gambler seeks the thrill of the game, the fisherman and the society around him are driven by society's delight in delicious meals. It's so unthreatening, so it isn't spoken of. It's this deep rooted connection to our primal desires as opposed to our primal flaws that makes addressing the problem so profoundly challenging. The desire for tasty food is a universal, primal instinct that resonates with everyone's essence multiple times a day. Throw in the taste of the sea, the flavors of the ocean, and the satisfaction within cultural traditions that have been etched into our collective memory since time immemorial, and you start to get a sense of what we're really up against here. In our pursuit of these simple mortal pleasures, we've disrupted the delicate balance of our oceans, pushing marine ecosystems to the brink. It's a complex problem rooted in something strikingly simple. Compared to other problems our world faces, the solution is simple. But as with many things in life, simple has never meant easy. To change our course, we must acknowledge these deep-seated desires while recognizing that our actions have consequences beyond our seafood-based gratification. We must play into the peculiarities of human motivation and human logic by making all types of seafood a commodity everywhere. And of all types, it can no longer be a resource. We must remove current government subsidies and somehow create rewards based on true sustainability through commodification as well as enforceable penalties the world over. These rewards and penalties need to reflect the fact that this isn't isn't about food anymore. And I wouldn't be against at least the American Navy, which already roams the world, getting involved in enforcement as well. And by God, we need to stop polluting the oceans. They aren't the black hole for our waste that we treat them like. They are making this clear to us now. We have the technology and know-how to address oceanic pollution now. The West should start doing this immediately. Hopefully Asia and others will follow soon after that. The West needs to lead the way. Nothing will get done if, something, if someone doesn't lead the way. Even if we'll need pretty much all countries to get on board to truly address the issue. It'll make seafood more expensive and less varied. But that's as it should be, as this endeavor of cleaning out the oceans is costly. Let's pay for it now with our dollars before we pay for it with our health. Let's be real now, unless you need to consume seafood to survive, it should be a rare treat anyway, at least for a couple generations, so that the oceans can heal up a little bit. And if you really care about your own health and that of the earth, and not in a tree-hugging way, but in a way that says you like oxygen and CO2 sequestering, Then you should probably stop eating wild-caught seafood and at least consider not supporting this industry at all anymore. Someone has just got to stop eating it now, or there'll be no eating it later for anyone. I hope you enjoyed part one of this deep dive into all things fishing and seafood. Soon will be coming part two. We will discuss the interesting nutritional profile of seafood and break it down specifically for each type of the most commonly eaten species. We will examine the health effects upon the human body of seafood in general and by species. We will examine ocean pollution much more deeply so that you can understand what's going on in our waters and what the implications are for humans. We will take a look at how to best buy or order seafood for sustainability and health sake. We will take a look at some of the organizations who are looking out for ocean creatures and what to know about what they have to say, plus much more. Please stay on the lookout for that, and thank you for listening to this show. It means so very much.